So good to be with uh, all of you this evening. We are starting a brand new series tonight. Um, and I really think as I was working on this message this week, I really think that this is going to be um, a, ch a challenging series for us as a church. Uh, we're going to be uh, taking the, really the foreseeable future for the next year or so uh, to work our way verse by verse through the book of Acts. And uh, what we're calling this series is House of Acts. The challenge for us is this. We want to be a house of Acts. Saints Hill, we want to be a house of Acts. Um, we want to be a house, first and foremost, because this is family. You look to your right and your left, you maybe don't know everybody that you're sitting around, but how many of you guys understand we have a father which makes us brothers and sisters? So this is actually family. This is a home. And what our goal is, as the leadership of this home, is to raise up this generation of followers of Jesus alive today to walk in the voice of God for the restoration of Eden on earth. That's what we want to see happen. But we don't just want to be a house, we want to be a house of acts. Um, I don't know about you, but I want to live into all that a disciple of Jesus filled with his spirit in them should live into. I, I, um, I really think that there's more for us as a church. I'm excited about what we're seeing. I'm excited. I mean, we get testimonies every week of different things happening in this room and outside of this room. I, I love all of it. But I don't know about you. I want to see more of heaven come. There's a, um, whenever I read through our core values or our vision statement, on earth as it is in heaven, just wow, it puts a demand on my life. It puts a demand on my life as a follower of Jesus to actually be the vessel in which God can use to see heaven come through. There's a, uh, when, when Jesus first calls his disciples, they're fishing, and he says, throw your net to the other side. They're like, listen, we haven't caught fish all day. Just throw your net. They throw their net to the other side, and it says they pull in so many fish that it begins to sink the boat. And then he says to them, and now I'm going to make you fishers of men. Do you guys understand that they were not thinking, oh, we went from catching a lot of fish in the ocean to now we're just going to like try really hard. The ground will be pretty fallow. People aren't really going to believe us, and they're going to have you know, a lot of issues with you know, the church in general. And so maybe we'll see a few people trickle in. No, they applied the same mentality of, oh, we're going to see that many fish. We're going to see that many people come into the kingdom. And it's something that I just desire to see. It, it goes beyond just a message. It goes beyond a Sunday. And it just, there's, there's souls, people. There, there's people who don't know Jesus. There's people who are living. They're, they're dead. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're just existing. They're not really living a life that's really life. And so I hope my prayer is that this, uh, this series that we, we're in really moves us beyond our church gatherings and into actually being a house of Acts. So with that said, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin this evening. Now, um, if you're at all new to the scriptures, uh, Acts is in what is called the New Testament, which is really uh, the story of Jesus and the story of the early church. And uh, so if you, if you need to, in your Bibles, you can go to the table of contents. You can flick through there. It's in the New Testament, and it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you get to Acts. And so we're going to be in Acts 1 this evening, and the plan is to go verse by verse through Acts 1 through 11 this evening. So... Look down at your Bibles, and, uh, and let's start. Uh, Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, here's the scene. 
we have Luke writing a part two to the Gospel of Luke. Originally, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were one single unified uh, work. And if you remember, Luke is a physician. His language is incredibly precise. He writes an incredible uh, biography. He's very good at it. And he titles this part two of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this book, Acts, he titles it to Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Well, um, Theophilus could have been a real person, but there's no historical record of him existing. So we could read into his name a little bit. Theo is the Greek root for God, right? Theo means God. And Phyllis is the Greek root for the word lover. So who's this historical account written to? It's written to God lovers. Do you love God? Are you interested in Jesus? Do you want to know more about his life? Pay attention. Now, um, Luke sets the scene here. Jesus has done a ton. He's said a ton. He's died on the cross. He was resurrected. It changed everything. In fact, look, look down at your Bibles. Verse 3 says this. After his suffering, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, his disciples, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, what you have to remember is that Luke is a very educated uh, Jewish man. He thinks and he writes like a Roman aristocrat. So notice this. He's not just saying Jesus was metaphorically resurrected, and he metaphorically gave a bunch of convincing proofs to his disciples. If he had meant that, he would have said that. He's not even saying uh, there was a delusion in the simple-minded ancients around that time that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They thought they saw a bunch of proofs, but they didn't see that. No. Luke, the physician, says Jesus came back from the dead. And he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Now, if you know anything about myth writing, myths are never specific. So if this was a myth, it would sound more like this. Over a great number of days, he appeared to them. He appeared to uh, tons of people. But no, it says that there were, he appeared to his disciples, and it's so specific. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Not 39 days, not 41 days. No, 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 yeah, remember, we counted. It was 40 days that he showed himself to us. Now, the Gospels are filled with these little proofs that Jesus was not only a real person, but that he actually rose from the dead. And one of the most clever ways that they do this is by mentioning names of people who would have had two things going for them. They mention, the Gospels mention names of people who, one, were alive during Jesus' death and resurrection, and two, they were alive at the writing of the Gospels of Jesus, when the, the Gospels of Jesus, the stories of his death, resurrection, were actually put down into record and on to paper. These are just two examples. I, I love both of these. In Mark 15, 21, Mark says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his own way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, you should be asking, why on earth do we need to know that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Hold that with you. And another time, in John 19, verse 25, it says this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, 
and Mary Magdalene. Who's Clopas? Who is that guy? Why would these gospel writers mention these random people? Well, these are the ancient version of footnotes. When you're reading a, a, you know, a, a philosophical work or a, uh, you know, a, a work that deals with psychology and maybe a new test that they've been running, what you'll, you'll read is you'll read a statement and there will be a little number and you follow that number down and you see a footnote. Oh, this is the person who said that and this is where they said it. It's proof, right? Well, what these names are is they're ancient versions of footnotes. In other words, do you, if you don't believe the account I've written, go talk to them. They're still alive. Go talk to Alexander. Go talk to Rufus. It's like Clopas, you, me, coffee right now. I need to hear about this whole cross thing, right? Now, um, scholars like Daryl Bach believe that Acts was written sometime in the 60s, so 60 AD, sometime 30 years-ish after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The reason uh, for that is twofold. First, when we read through the book of Acts like we're going to do over the next little while, what we find is that the Roman officials in the book of Acts seem to know very little about the way of Jesus, and they're still sort of deciding where Christianity fits into Greek culture. It means that this is very early in the Jesus movement. These Roman officials are still figuring out, who are these people, and what do you guys believe in? Why are the Jews mad at you? But the second reason why we think that this book was written in the 60s is there's good reason to think that this is a very early uh, document because those who would have been alive for Jesus and the action of the church are still alive while this is being written. So those people Luke mentions, well, throughout this book, they can back up what we're about to read that took place. So look back down at verse 3. It says this. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive, literally. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, notice what Jesus is speaking about over these 40 days. It's the kingdom of God. Take a mental note, and we're going to come back to that. Now, what follows in the next few verses after verse 3 is what I like to call the conversation that changed the world. Out of all the conversations that Jesus could have had in those 40 days that he was resurrected, Luke gives us specific insight into this conversation, and I think it's for a very important reason. Verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the question we should be asking is, where did the Father promise a gift, and where did the Father promise the Holy Spirit? Well, a couple of different places. Next slide. In Joel chapter 2, it says this, Afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Ezekiel, the prophet, says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This has been promised by the Father, this gift of God's spirit being with us for many, many years. Now, Jesus says that when this spirit comes, when this gift comes, it's going to be like this. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, why use the same word baptized? Because he's trying to get across a point. 
What is baptism in Judaism? At the time, in the first century, how do Jews think about baptism? Well, um, Jews used miniature pools called mikvahs to purify and to cleanse themselves before they would go up to the temple. Here's a photo of a mikvah from yours truly when I was in Israel a few years ago. And it has steps down in, and that would have been filled with water. And this was actually in somebody's house. So they were an incredibly wealthy, you know, aristocrat uh, Jew at the time. And they would have had their own mikvah. So if anybody's unclean in their house, go take a dip in there before we go up to temple to sacrifice. Essentially, um, for, for, for the Jew, baptism is cleansing for going into a holy place. It prepares you for the space that you're about to inhabit. So think about this. Jesus says, you know, John had a baptism. You know the mikvah thing, and you know he was out in the Jordan River, and he was kind of breaking some rules, and, and you remember that he was cleansing for the forgiveness of sins. Think about it like this now. The baptism of repentance is not Jesus' baptism. When you're baptized into Jesus, you get his spirit. It doesn't just cleanse you. It does that. It doesn't just make you ready to go to temple, but it prepares you to become the temple. And just like water drips off of you after you come up out of the mikvah, the spirit will drip off of you everywhere you walk when the spirit is poured out on you. John baptized with water, but soon you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, notice where the disciples' minds are at. Verse six says this. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, they're excited, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They only have 40 days with Jesus. And the expectation of the Jews was a physical kingdom. You gotta imagine they're under Roman control. Everywhere you go, you have to ask the guards permission. Can I go into this store? Can I go up to the temple? Can I do this or that? They're completely occupied by the Roman government. And there's been other Messiah figures who have come before Jesus who have caused uprising against the Romans, started battles against the Romans because of the oppression that they're living under. Now notice how Jesus responds to this question. Are you gonna bring the kingdom? Is it time for the physical kingdom? Verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, he brings them back to this point, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. The, the point of this passage is this. Jesus is coming back. Don't worry about the time. As a New Testament believer... It's not your job to find out when Jesus is returning or what will cause his return. Jesus says in the Gospels, he doesn't even know when that's happening, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. Jesus puts his disciples' focus and our focus where it should be, the power of the Spirit of God. Check out all of these mentions throughout this passage that we just read of the Spirit. 
Wait for the promised gift. You'll be baptized by the Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the concrete commands for every disciple reading this passage are these two commands. Wait for the Spirit, then you'll be my witness. Wait for the Spirit, then you'll be my witness. I just want to show you a photo real fast. This is a map. And what this map shows uh, visually is how Christianity spread from 300 AD to 800 AD. So you can see the dark blue is uh, the Christian areas around 300. Now, remember, it started in Jerusalem. So think about how far it spread. And then it shows here the kind of teal areas. Those are the areas that were Christianized by 300 and by three, from 300 to 600 AD. And then eventually the yellow, you see it begins to spread to um, kind of the Anglo-Saxon part of the world from 600 to 800 AD. What this is, it's a mapped representation of the passion of the disciples. Christians faced persecution off and on from the reign of Emperor Nero in 64 AD, around this time of the book of Acts, until 313 AD. But what this map makes clear is that persecution did not stop the spread of Christianity. And I would put forth to you this evening that all of this can be traced back to this conversation. Look down, verse eight, let's read it again but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, the surrounding environment, and to the ends of the world. It's almost like they took Jesus seriously. And here we are today in 2019 in a small town in America worshiping Jesus, a first century Jew. It's just incredible. One of the titles that I thought about for this series was Expanding Eden Part (laughs) 2. Because really that's what Acts is. It's Expanding Eden Round 2. The New Testament language for the kingdom is like the Old Testament language for Eden or for heaven on earth. It's God's rule and reign internally in humans being seen externally through the choices we make and the presence that we host. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and those who believed in Jesus, what it does is it reverses the curse in Genesis chapter 3 that kept humans from partnering with God for the renewal of all things. Here's what the the Holy Spirit coming is. It's a reversal of Genesis chapter 3. It's a restoration of sonship and daughtership. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a reversal of Exodus 19. We get restored to priesthood. We all get to be priests, not just a specific sect. It's the reversal of God's spirit being only for kings. It's for everyone. We get to be kings and queens. Quite simply, the Holy Spirit coming returns us to God's original intentions. And because of that, the original call of Genesis is our call today. It's the same call. I mentioned this, these last week, and I think these are really important. I think I'm going to do more uh, on these in the future. But I really think that these are the four keys uh, to understanding partnership with the Holy Spirit and the Father that come right out of Genesis 1 through 3. The first is this. When we, when we look in the book of Genesis, what we see is that God creates out of community. Let us make mankind in our image. What does that mean? 
It means that God wants us. He doesn't need us. And he waits to see the creative thing that we will do. He's not interested in controlling us. He wants to see what are humans going to bring to the table. That's the first way of thinking that we have to think through if we want to see Eden expanded through us. The second is this. Two-tree leadership. God doesn't plant one tree in the garden. He plants two trees in the garden. What does it mean? He gives us choice. In other words, God prefers freedom to perfection. Rather than controlling everything and making sure it's all safe and perfect, God plants two trees so that we have the ability to not choose to obey him. In other words, he wants us to be free more than he wants us to be like robots. The third way of thinking that we have to get into our minds for this Genesis and Acts call on our lives is this. There's raw material and animals in the garden to rule over. God doesn't make the garden perfect and just say, enjoy it. He says, what are you going to do with it? There's raw material. There's, 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 there's things that have incredible potential in the garden. What will you do with the raw material that I've given you? We're designed to cause the earth to flourish. God wants hand-in-hand creative ruling. And lastly, we're born into a battle where our agreement spreads dominion. Where did the snake come from? Why? And I thought God, everything that he made was good. Where did the snake come from? Remember what Jesus says? I saw Satan fall like lightning. And you got to imagine his disciples are like, where were we? Was that when you were at the woman at the well and we were getting food? Like, when was that? It was before the foundation of the earth, when the battle in heaven took place and Lucifer, who wanted more power, more authority, was actually cast out of God's space. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And we believe, as followers of Jesus, and, and we believe the Bible to be telling us that this serpent is the accuser, the enemy of God, gotten into God's good creation. God created Eden to expand the borders of Eden, his good rule and reign through the choice of humans, hand in hand with them. But there is a real enemy who does not want that to happen. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 is it's through our agreement, agree with God, spread his kingdom, agree with the enemy, spread that kingdom, and we're living in the aftermath of the decisions that were made in Genesis chapter 3. The point is this. God didn't start over in Acts with a new plan. It's always been the same plan. It's dignity for humans and choice given in order to save all of creation. And with his spirit in us, we are equipped to walk in his kingdom and to spread his kingdom through our agreement and our partnership. I I just want us to pause and to realize this. Next slide. The spirit that did all of this is the same spirit that's in you tonight. Can I get an amen? The spirit that did all of this is the same spirit that's in us tonight. So what will you do with your life? When you're young, you don't think about this, but I'm starting to get to the age, I'm almost 30, I'm starting to get to the age where, I, where I'm thinking about, oh, I have one life. I've got one life to live. What am I gonna do with it? There's so much potential out there in front of you when you're in college. I'm specifically speaking to you college kids. There's so much potential out there that anything could happen. But over the next 10, 12 years, you're going to make decisions that really kind of direct your life. It's not that things can't change in the future, but you're going to make decisions about what you're going to be about. You have one life. The same spirit that did that is in us tonight. What are you going to do with that? 
The question that Jesus has asked in verse six is this. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When will you restore the kingdom? And he actually doesn't say, but what he does say is this, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you want the kingdom? Wait for the Spirit. You want the kingdom? Wait for the Spirit. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a first century teacher and all rabbis had students. Disciples, like Jesus had. The interesting thing is this. Rabbis would only ever release their disciples to either live on their own or basically like graduate the rabbi program that they were in if they could do what their rabbi did. So once they saw, okay, my disciples can do what I can do, great, you're released. But obviously, the disciples at this point can't do what Jesus could do, right? He's saying, you don't have any power, wait for the Holy Spirit, (laughs) and then you'll be my witnesses. So the question that I have for you this evening is this, why does Jesus leave before his disciples can do what their rabbi does? Why does he leave before the Holy Spirit comes? Because they can actually do what he did. The key to the ministry of Jesus wasn't wielding the power of the Holy Spirit, it was waiting on the Holy Spirit. And they can wait. What was the key to the life of Jesus? It wasn't wielding the power of the Holy Spirit, it was a life of waiting on the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, I don't take a step until I see that the Father is taking a step in that direction, I wait. So they actually can do what their rabbi does, they can wait. And it was that waiting that Jesus was interested in getting into the disciples because that waiting would unlock everything else. I I love that it's waiting don't you? Because um, one of the things that American Christianity has done is it's made the Holy Spirit seem kind of spooky. Like, do you know anybody who, maybe this is you, this was my wife and I a couple of years ago, where where it's like, I don't know about the Holy Spirit. I'm good with the scriptures, good with Jesus, Father, it's, that's all good, but Holy Spirit, isn't that like what people with like white dinner jackets smack people with and like, they like make people fall down and isn't it like, I'm not sure about that. We, we have this thing in American Christianity where we almost think that we have to like work ourselves up emotionally and then the spirit comes. We're gonna get hyped. We're gonna sing the song, spirit break out, and then the spirit's gonna break out. Jesus said it was different. He said, wait, pause, be still, be patient. The spirit is coming. So you want the kingdom? The kingdom expands at the pace of your ability to wait for the Holy Spirit's nudge. Not your ability to to work yourself up and and I'm gonna do what Jesus did today. No, it's your ability to say I'm gonna stay in step with the Spirit and I'm not gonna get ahead or behind. That expands and brings the kingdom. There's a temptation to make the kingdom more complex than it is. Um, like cultural issues and the tendency of modern thought, the failings of the church have all culminated to needing to change the strategy. 
It was, it's almost like this today. Um, hey, it was cool waiting for the Holy Spirit when uh, Twitter didn't exist, but people need answers now. We don't have time to wait. It's almost like this. Um, hey, listen, waiting for the Holy Spirit was fine when church scandals weren't breaking every single week, but there's scandals, and it's time for us to disband some churches, kick some people out of leadership. It's almost like, hey, waiting on the Holy Spirit, that was okay uh, when individualism wasn't rampant in America, but now waiting is just a little reckless. And so you'll often find well-intentioned disciples who do what I call the silver, silver bullet ministry thing. And here's what I mean. It is, we, we go, I don't know if I have time to wait for the Holy Spirit, so I'm just going to read this article and find out, you know, what is, what's, what's this church doing? What's this leader doing? What are they doing? What's my friend doing? I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to try that. Oh, that didn't work. It was almost like this. In the early 2000s, the idea was this. The more relevant church can be, the cooler church can be to the culture, the more we're going to see the kingdom expand. And so everybody's like, we need lights, and we need a big band, and we need our pastor to wear a certain type of jeans. And it was like... I don't want to wear those jeans anymore. And, you're, and it's like, you know, we, if we can just do those things, then we're going to see the kingdom come. And you just see the church just time after time. And sometimes I, I do think, look, our methods of evangelism, our methods of kingdom expansion, those methods are, are flexible and they're going to change and we're going to see God doing different things through them. But one thing that we will not see change is our primary job being waiting on the Spirit to move on something, then going in that direction because that's where the grace is. It's not our job. I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine, a pastor in uh, Portland the other day, and he was just saying, he's like, so like, you know, what, what kind of articles have you been reading? What books have you been reading? And I'm like, dude, you'd be so disappointed. I really don't read like anything. I don't read Christianity Today. I don't read about what other churches do. I just don't read that stuff. Really? Why? Well, you know, there's a lot of great stuff. I'm, it's not, I know there's a lot of great stuff happening out there. I know it. But my primary job is to find out what the Lord is saying about this specific community and to walk in that direction. My job is not to find out what other, what's working in other parts of the world. It's to go, God, I have your ear. I have your voice in my life. What do you say? What are you doing? I had a conversation with a gal uh, at coffee this last week and uh, just fantastic conversation about just different things that our church was doing and stepping into. And um, she was noticing God moving in some ways that I wasn't noticing quite yet and bringing them to mind for me. And I love those conversations. I really like, it's such a joy when I see people from our church go, I'm taking ownership for this and I wanna see God move in this way and I have an idea for this thing. And, and oftentimes you'll find that we'll normally just say, kick it right back to you and say, okay, what are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna lead in that? And uh, if you don't like that, this is just not your church. Um, but, I, but I really like, I just like, I was like, oh wow, that's so creative and so unique. I am so far, I'm far more interested in finding out what God is stirring up amongst us than, my, than I am in finding out what worked for a mega church in Georgia. I just am, like that's great. I think that's awesome. I don't live in Georgia, I live here in Newburgh. And, and, and so I'm, I'm interested. I even like, look, I come from an incredible church. Matt and I worked together for years. I love Bridgetown. I'm not interested in what Bridgetown is doing. I'm, I'm happy that they're doing that there. I'm interested in what God would have us do. It, it's, it's the beauty of diversity within the kingdom of God to see churches emphasizing different things, shouting different things, whispering different things. 
And, and I, I just think that God is just bringing us a, 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 live, a people alive who would wait on his spirit. Show him that kind of honor. Say, I trust you more than our ingenuity. I trust you more than the creativity of, of, of people around the world or in major metropolitan areas. I trust you. I, I want to see what you would have us do here. And then give us the courage to step into it. So a, a couple of thoughts as we end and as we think about being a church that waits on the Holy Spirit. The first thought is this. Obedience to the Spirit doesn't always look like wisdom. Obedience to the Spirit does not always look like wisdom. Oftentimes, when you wait for the Spirit to move or to speak, you won't always look wise in the eyes of those around you. You may be criticized for wasting time. (laughs) You may be criticized for your inaction. You're not doing anything. We know what the right thing to do is. Okay, Look, I know that, that, look, if you're convicted, that's great. I just get my convictions not from you. I get them from him. So I need to go to him and to be convicted about that. The wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of the world because God's ultimate goal isn't your comfort or earthly success. It's Eden expanding and you joining him. John Tyson said this. This is just fantastic. When you remove the wisdom of God, When you remove the wisdom of God and God simply becomes a reference point, the self becomes God, the body becomes a soul, and and time becomes eternity. And in doing so, all earthly wisdom is defined by yourself, the desires of your body, and the moment. I don't want that to be true of us. I would rather have his wisdom than what makes sense. This is not how the book of Acts happened. It seems that the disciples only cared about the Holy Spirit. Just a couple examples. This first one is when they're deciding a doctrinal issue for Greeks coming into a largely Jewish church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And they list out the requirements for Greek followers of Jesus. Do you see how they're making decisions in the book of Acts? They're not like... Yeah, you know, um, it seemed like a good idea, and we saw that other church in Athens doing it, and so we're just going to do what they're doing. They're like, no, we've consulted the Holy Spirit, and it makes sense to us that we're going to require these things. Don't drink the blood of strangled animals. Don't Don't have sex with somebody that you're not married to. Don't do any idolatry. And there's really amazing reasons for those things in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, this also happens. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia, And Galatia, having been, notice this, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. See, what makes sense to the world is, look, you read the, okay, we need to go to Judea, to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the world. But the disciples, what did they do? They said, we're going to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us going there, so we're going here. John Wimber, um, who started the vineyard movement down in Anaheim, California, he had this story that I recently read, and I just want to share it with you. It's so just amazing. Um, at the time, this is back in like the uh, early 70s, he was a pop musician. I didn't know, did you know that, that John Wimber was a pop musician? I didn't know that either. But um, he was a pop musician, and uh, he had this record deal that was really great in the works. It would have gotten him loads of money. So he has, he signed with like a big label. And he had that week read the passage about the pearl of great price. In that passage, a man finds this invaluable pearl. He sells everything that he has in order to buy the pearl. By the Holy Spirit, John Wimber knew that God would have him give up music and start work as a janitor in a factory. So he did it. One day, 
his friend, who was on the same label, came by to ask him to remove his name from the record deal and release the label from any money that they had owed to John Wimber. And so Wimber did so. He took his name off. He gave it up. And covered there in grease and grime, John Wimber, his friend, looked at him and said, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Wimber, later reflecting on the situation, said this, as I watched my friend drive away, I thought, there's no way to explain obedience and sacrifice to God to those who do not see the pearl. Do you see the pearl? It's a life in step with his spirit, a life hand in hand with your creator, living in his glory. It's what you were made for, to wait on his spirit. Second point, sometimes we wait for the wrong things. We're to wait on his spirit, but sometimes we wait for other things. Sometimes we wait for permission from humans when we already have a command from the spirit. Ever been there? <laughs> In the same conversation that I had with this gal at Chapters this week, um, I'm, not, I'm like paraphrasing, so wherever you're at, I'm just gonna paraphrase what you said. Uh, she said this, it seems like you and the elders are encouraging us to just be the church even before you tell us specifically how. I'm like, yes, that's it. Jesus didn't say, wait for the church leadership to get a great community structure going. He said, love your neighbor. He said, the same power that is in you, that, is, that rose him from the dead, is in you. So ask your neighbor to come over for dinner. He said, wait for the spirit. I love how Jacob, I just listened to the, our, our, we recorded our panel discussion that we had from a couple weeks back, and I love how Jacob described our mission uh, for someone who calls Saints Hill home. So if you're here tonight, you call Saints Hill home, here's our mission for you. Uh, he said, what we're trying to develop is a Christian who doesn't need church leadership to walk out their destiny for them. A Christian who doesn't need church leadership to walk out their destiny for them. My job as a leader is to inspire you, to equip you to be who Jesus already calls you to be. But my goal for you isn't for you to need me to preach to you before you go out and do some sort of kingdom work, evangelism, or, or whatever. My goal is to get you in such a relationship with the Spirit that you come up with things to do and a passion to do them with that I never could have inspired in you. The Holy Spirit only produces originals. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit only produces originals. And what often happens when the leadership of a specific church is who you wait for before doing what Jesus has already commissioned you to do is you just constantly, you become a copy of whatever church you go to. I don't want you to be a copy of me, a copy of Bria, a copy of Jacob, a copy of Andoni, or any of our other leaders. I don't want you to be a copy. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit, wait for him, and ask him what he would have you do in this space and in this time. We need you to do it. Can you imagine a church that only moved at the pace of what the church leadership was interested in doing? I don't want to be a part of that church. I want to be a church that moves at the pace of waiting on the Holy Spirit and seeing what God would have for the individual members of that family and for the family as a whole. We need you to be your unique gift to this church as a whole and to our town. So wait for the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I think it would be a shame for us to talk about waiting for the Holy Spirit and not doing it. <laughs> to just talk about, what does he say? Wait for the Holy Spirit. And for us to be like, yeah, so they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. No, 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 we wait for the Holy Spirit. So, so here's what we're gonna do. Um, Zig, if you wouldn't mind coming up. We're just gonna create space, and I have no idea what the Spirit of God is going to do this evening. That's part of what makes church fun. If you knew what was gonna happen at church every night, why would you keep on going? Um, I love the presence of God. I love what he does. So let's all stand together, and uh, we're just gonna pause, and we're gonna wait.